0: Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Gentlemen, have you grown out that beard? Are you just starting? Well, if you're like me, you began to notice pretty quickly that the skin underneath all that hair can get pretty dry and flaky. And trust me when I tell you, beard dandruff sucks. And the people over the beard struggle know this and have made it their life's work to develop the best products to make growing, and keeping that beard as painless as possible. Over time, the ingredients in their formulas have proven themselves, not just because their customers have had enormous success with them, but because they have worked for centuries. They use 100% natural ingredients, never test on animals, and promise a 90 day money back guarantee. From the day and night oils, the shampoos and conditioners, all the way to the ingenious beard straightener. They have everything you need to tame that face fur, and I use them, my beard has never looked Felt or smelled better. Just ask my wife. So go to the beardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on our link in the show notes and use our new exclusive discount code AUDIO 15 at checkout for 15% off. That's A-U-D-I-O 15 for 15% off your entire order. Go now and feast your face!
1: I should change my name to Tired.
0: Change your name to Mom, can I?
1: No, I think I should change it to Tired.
0: 106. <laughs> On the temperature gauge in here.
1: 106.
0: Is that closed all the way over there? No, I opened it a bit. Oh, close it because it's going to get really cold in here if you don't.
1: It was really hot over here. Just trying to make sure no fuzzies got in my tea.
0: Fuzzies in your tea?
1: Yeah, like from the the foam,
0: foam fuzzies, foam fuzzies,
1: or dust, or anything.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Welcome to <laughs> open a fucking book. It's Black History Month. It is. I'm
0: Stephanie. I'm Kevin. Um, getting into it yeah, a week later than what we had originally planned, but it's okay. Um, I might have more time to work on it since you know I'm on quarantine now.
1: Yes, which means. He's home for two weeks, and I still have to do everything.
0: Oh, you're so full of shit. The only thing you get all, all you gotta do is, is go to where... Usually, I would go pick up something, and now you have to.
1: No, usually I do it right after I pick up the boys from school, like the grocery shopping and shit. Unless I forget something, then I ask you to pick it up on your way home from work.
0: I go get shit all the time.
1: Unless I'm too tired
0: or Yeah, so I go hurting. get shit all the time.
1: You do. But... Now, like, when it comes to, like, going to the hardware store
0: or anything like that. It's good for you.
1: Yeah, I guess. But.
0: So, all of you are wondering, my oldest son has tested positive. So, he is quarantining right now. But I had, he doesn't live with us. He lives with his mother. But I had to go pick him up from the hospital because, of you know, some shit happened. And he was in my car, didn't have much of a choice, so now I have to quarantine. Pretty sure I don't have anything, but I guess only time will tell. I gotta go get the big test on Tuesday. It's
1: his first time getting tested.
0: It is. I'm excited.
1: I've been tested four times, (laughs) and he's been tested zero. I'm
0: not showing symptoms, so it's going to be the regular test, so they're going to jab my brain.
1: Well, even with the rapid test, they jab your brain. No,
0: the rapid test, they just swab the inside of your nose a little higher than normal. I've
1: had both at the place you're getting tested, and they don't jab it.
0: The first one you said. No, when I went to a different different
1: hospital. No, because at the place where you're getting tested, I had both the rapid test and the, the regular test.
0: Yeah, and the first one you did was the rapid test, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, but they didn't jab your brain. You told me it wasn't that bad. They just swabbed the inside of your nose.
1: Yeah, neither of them that I've gotten at the place where you're going, did they jab me inside of my nose. When I went to a different hospital, they went all the way back okay. with the, the sharper tip. I don't
0: think it's a like sharper tip. Like I had to tip. do on I my daughter. Think it feels sharper because it's hitting a spot of your body that's no supposed
1: to it is a. Uh, it's more like a pipe cleaner than it is a Q-tip. The one at the place where you're going is okay, so more of a Q-tip. It's, it's
0: more coarse, not sharp. Yes. Okay, that makes sense. At any rate, um, you know, it's whatever. Gets me out of work for a couple weeks, I guess. Which I'll get paid for some of it. Not all of it, but I'll get paid for some of it. So I'll just cross my fingers that I'm not sick and enjoy my time at home with my wife while the kids are at school. Yay! Yeah, all right. All right, well, let's get into it. <laughs> So the subject of this series was an essayist, playwright, novelist, and a voice of the American civil rights movement. He broke new literary ground with the exploration of racial and social issues in his many works. He was especially known for his essays on the black experience in America. He was black and homosexual, but fought tirelessly to go against simple labels and be seen as just an American and a person. We've mentioned him in two past series before, so I figured it was about time we tell his story. We'll cover his writings, his plays, his famous friends, his relationships, his travels, and one very unfortunate meeting with an unsavory magician. Some of his books and essays are Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, Stranger in the Village, The Fire Next Time, Notes of of a Native Son, Another Country, Giovanni's Room, And go tell it on the mountain. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the life of James Baldwin. Now, the two series that we mentioned him in just uh, last week, I believe, we mentioned him in Flannery O'Connor. She refused to meet with him. And if you remember many months ago, when we covered Alex Haley. We talked about them meeting in Alex Haley's basement. For a while as he was still trying to cover Malcolm X. Yes. So figured, well, we've we've mentioned him in more series than anybody else. So we might as well go ahead and fucking talk about him.
1: And it is Black History Month. Yes.
0: Well, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it. We're going to get to him anyway. At at some point. I just kind of moved him up the ladder because, you know, Black History Month and, and cover him. What do you know about James Baldwin?
1: some of the titles of his books okay and that's about it okay that's fine like i've heard of
0: him right well i think most everybody's heard of him and seen pictures of him like you see a picture of him you you know who he is you might not know exactly who his name is but you know you've seen him and you know you've read maybe not read his books but you know some of the titles of his books our main reference for this series is james baldwin a biography by david lemming now him and david were good friends While James was alive, so a lot of the stuff you're going to get is first-hand knowledge. A lot of the stuff in the book is David's trying to psychoanalyze James through some of it. I try to keep some of that out of it. He does know him pretty well, but I'm not into wanting to really psychoanalyze the people we're covering. I kind of want to just cover their life. That's my job. Yeah, so some of that's going to be left out. If, if you want the psychoanalysis, I say go get the book. It's it's a it's a good book. He covers a little bit too much of the ins and outs of how he was producing the plays that he will eventually do. We won't cover any of that in this episode. But, I mean, it, it's, still, it's still a good book. It's a good read. And you'll learn a lot. I mean, you learn a lot. So, if that's what you want, if that's what you're into. If you're listening to this, obviously you are. <laughs> so, uh, go get the book. I got it on uh, Kindle. And there is a uh, an audible for it if you'd rather listen than, you know, read.
1: Like my husband?
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: As he takes a long-ass drink and pause. Hmm? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so, James Arthur Baldwin was born a great-grandson of a slave in New York City's Harlem Hospital to Emma Beardus Jones, on august second, nineteen twenty four. Now, Beardus, as she was called, was born on Christmas Day, nineteen oh one, in Deal Island, Maryland. Much of her early life's let's say journey, is the possible inspiration for Elizabeth in Go Tell It on the Mountain. Beardus's mother died when she was young, and she was brought up by her fisherman father. She moved in with her oldest sister Bula, Beulah. Beulah, I'm sorry. Beulah. I said it right in my head probably a hundred times and I heard him say it on the uh, audible. For some reason, I still fucked it up when I got to it. It's okay.
1: I'm, you have your whole life for me to correct you.
0: Yay. She moved in with her older sister Beulah when he got remarried. Then in her early 20s, she moved to New York in hopes of a better life. Now you may be wondering why I didn't tell you about James's father. Died. In early 1924, she got pregnant by a man that James would never meet. In early 1927, she met and married David Baldwin, a man several years older than her. He never meets her. He never meets him because she never tells him who he is. There's conflicting arguments about who he was and why he wasn't in the picture. Um, If you go to the... You trust it if you want, but if you go to the Wikipedia article on James Baldwin, it says that... uh, they separated because he had drug issues. But it never goes as far to tell you who it is. I don't know where they got their sources, but um, him and David, who wrote this book, were good friends, and he doesn't know, so I'm, imagine, I am I can't imagine the person who wrote the Wikipedia article probably knows. So, But that's what it is. James never knows his father.
1: So that could possibly not be his true last name.
0: Well... Technically, his last name is James Jones, because Burtis, Emma's last name was Jones. Right. But when he is two, early 1927, she meets David Baldwin, a man several years older than her. Oh, okay. They get married. He takes David's name. Okay. That's how he becomes James Baldwin. Now, David is a minister that seemed willing to love her son as he was his own something i think every single mother looks for a man to love their children her children the way he would love yeah
1: i mean if, if you're gonna be with me you're gonna love my kids
0: well david was known as the great good friend of the great god almighty and the son of a slave called barbara whom james was in awe of she gave birth to 14 children some black some white And would become, for James, the prototype of the ancient forced motherhood that makes black and white Americans all brothers and sisters. He loved his grandma. She was a storyteller and, um, you know, just just the the really, really old grandma that you would go see when you were a little kid. Like a great-grandma. She -hmm. was old enough to be his great-grandma because he was quite a bit older than she was um so she was pretty fucking old and she was a slave so he got all those stories just like alex haley had gotten all those stories so fun times yeah now david was a certain type of inspiration for james as well his bitter subservience to bill collectors landlords and other whites led james to disrespect him as they got older he loathed white people for the way they made him and other black people feel, but he was too much of a coward to stand up to them, seeing them as a higher status than he was. He was talk about the white devils, which this, that will be something I say quite a bit in this episode. Talk about the white devils—a bunch to James and his family. But when white people came around, it was, uh, "Yes, sir. No, sir. Yeah, do do what you're told." Yeah, that's how he was. He was brought up in. He came from the south. He was brought up in the south, and he moved to New York, so. That's just kind of how it was.
1: Yeah, I, I say fuck white people.
0: Yeah, you were boy and they were sir and ma'am. Pretty much is, is how, how it was when he, he was growing up. Uh, this would eventually help all of this. the The hating of white people, the feeling second class to white people would eventually help lead David. I'm sure with a few other psychological and medical issues, probably a form of dementia, to going mad. Hmm. Yeah. This slow process started before he came into James's life, when David lived in the South before moving to New York, and decided that if the white devil wouldn't accept him, then maybe God would. So, he became a preacher in the tradition of the Pentecostal Black Church, calling down the wrath of God on the sinners of the white Sodom and Gomorrah. David had a family before he ma- met James' mother, a son named David, that died in jail and who would become the model for many fictional brothers that would suffer at the hands of the white law, and Sam, another son that left home despite pleas from his father and would only return when David Sr. was on his deathbed. Sam would also be characters in James's stories. James' stories. Uh, Sam saved James from drowning when he was a young kid. And in his stories, many times, there was a strong, protective, older brother character, Sam
1: one drowning, not drowning
0: drowning drop drop dr- drowning drowning
1: dr- dr- there's no d there's an o
0: w n in the middle, so it's own so it's droning
1: drowning because the i after the n gives it a different sound, so
0: here's what you have to understand: I don't fucking care
1: I know. Second of all, I mean, it might be more popular in bigger cities. I haven't spent a lot of time in bigger cities. The only Pentecostal church I've ever gone to was in a small white town.
0: I I was raised in a a
1: small white town as well. I never thought of black people going to Pentecostal churches. I always
0: I always imagined
1: black people being Baptists.
0: No, there's there's black Pentecostal churches. Black. Baptist, Black Methodist, Black Lutheran. If there's a white one, there's a, a black one too. Well, I mean, like, I, cause. They're holy rollers. They're the ones who, uh, you know, the Baptist ones were the ones who would stay in, in the pews and clap their hands and sing with the big hats, and the Pentecostal ones were the ones who would go out on the aisle and roll around on the ground. Yeah,
1: but I don't see black people doing oh, that. Sure. Just like I don't, I don't really see black Catholics.
0: Uh,. I mean, I'm sure there are some, but I think blacks have been persecuted by Catholics so much in the past that maybe they've yes. up. Yeah,
1: and that's why I I don't really think there are Honestly, are very many black they've been Pentecostals. Persecuted by the entire
0: Christian religion for you know their entire existence too, but you know whatever.
1: Because you have to grow your hair out and wear it naturally in Pentecostal, in the Pentecostal religion in
0: Orthodox Pentecostal. So now, now you're getting into a whole thing about Pentecostal, Orthodox, all, all this and that. It, it's all, there, there's a bunch of different denominations and styles and sects that you can go into with it. We were a part of an assembly of God that's a penny, technically a Pentecostal church, and... Okay, we went, didn't have the same rule like go oh, you can't dance, but we danced all the time there. It, 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 there's all a bunch of different fucking rules for this stupid shit. But yes, there are. Black I wasn't a member
1: of the church. I just want to make that clear. I attended with some friends every once in a while, but yeah, you had to wear skirts down to your ankles. Yeah, that's an
0: Orthodox Pentecostal. Church.
1: Um, you couldn't wear makeup. Yeah, you know, I got looked at because my hair was short, and you know where weird glances and stuff i mean it was just
0: we went to a very unorthodox pentecostal church jeans and t-shirts on sunday nights and uh, i mean you look nice for sunday but it's church and technically i guess you're supposed to god doesn't want to see you in your holy jeans i guess i don't know fuck them but that's not the type of church we went to where all the women had to wear dresses and no makeup and you had to grow out your hair that's that that's not the way it it, it is here but
1: i grew up a baptist so i'm i'm a little i was called a back pew baptist though
0: i sat in the back pew drew on the uh, tithing envelopes
1: yeah i always took a notebook and took notes and then when i got bored (laughs) i drew oh we didn't
0: we didn't we didn't take notes we just took the tithing envelopes for the offering and we draw just weird shit on them said notes to each other we give notes to one another. Even though we sat right next to each other, so we didn't need the notes, but we did it anyway because like, we felt like it.
1: We wrote notes because you could, I got in trouble for talking, like whispering to whoever was next to me in church.
0: Oh, yeah. I no, got in trouble
1: for talking a lot.
0: That didn't happen with us. I mean, unless our parents yelled at us, but the pastor never stopped.
1: Oh, the pastor stopped quite no, a few no, times was. to yell at me. <laughs>
0: well, you know that, well, and you, and you say... You know the difference between a Catholic and a Baptist. Catholics go in the front door of the bar and the Baptists go on the back.
1: I was gonna say Catholics mourn their faith and Baptists celebrate it.
0: No. No, it's 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 the Catholics go on the front door of the bar, and the Baptists go on the back. Everybody knows the Catholics are gonna go get drunk, but the Baptist doesn't want to admit that they're going to, but they do it anyway. anyway. I went through the front door. Mm. Now, anyway, David and Burtis would go on to have eight more children over the next 16 years. George, Barbara, Wilmer, another David, Gloria, Ruth, Elizabeth, and Paula. Oh,
1: that's a lot of fucking
0: kids. That's a lot of fucking (laughs) (laughs) kids. A
1: lot of fucking and a lot of fucking
0: kids. Now, but before all that, the relationship between James and his stepfather was already on rocky ground. Uh, based, as James saw it, on David's own self-esteem issues that stem not only from his cowardice about white people, but also his insecurity about James's real father and how he stood compared to to him in Burdus's mind. The bitch probably didn't even know who he was. No, the bitch, she knew who he, that's, she's, Did not, she, <laughs> she knew who he was. I don't I don't think she just wouldn't tell him she her son wouldn't tell him because uh, I'm guessing more than likely he's not somebody that she wanted around or something happened to him. But she's not the type of woman to just go Or maybe she was raped.
1: Which that I was think, the first thought that popped up. I my think mind. it's
0: more than likely she got into a relationship with a guy who was kind of a piece of shit and she got pregnant and she didn't want him anywhere around her or her kids, so she just left. That's what that's the impression I'm getting from the book. Now his bitterness David would eventually offend the people of the church so much that he would be less sought after as a preacher and eventually have no work at all. And coming from a former Pentecostal, you have to be pretty fucking bitter to be too bitter for the church. <laughs> but, so, but things did start off really great between the two. Uh, James remembered sensing, quote, my daddy's pride in the the days when they first started to get to know one another but things became more difficult for the as things became more difficult for the family david's paranoia developed and james became the brunt of it david had him <clears throat> for all you guys who are listening hold your breath circumcised at around age 5
1: it would hurt less
0: nah nah Five years old is still good enough at age to uh, remember that. That.
1: Yeah, but you're, you're not going to remember it as much as you would as if you were an
0: adult. All, all the guys out there listening going, oh, oh. That's why they do it when you're a baby. And if you're not going to do it when you're a baby, don't do it at all. I know, that's why my boys aren't circumcised. Yeah. Uh, He was beaten for losing a dime that he had been given to buy kerosene for the stove, the last dime in the house, and the ever-present memory of David making fun of his eyes and calling him, quote, the ugliest child he had ever seen. Uh, James would one day come to understand that his physical appearance need have no effect on what he might do in life. He told the story of seeing an old drunk woman with huge eyes and huge lips outside his house, he ran to his mom, who also had big bulging eyes and lips, so he assumed she must be ugly too, yelling, quote, you see, you see, she's uglier than you, mama, she's uglier than me. Shit. Kind of sad. Yeah. Now, just as much as his family, Harlem itself was inspiration for a good amount of his later fiction. Harlem was multiracial, and mostly everyone was poverty-stricken, and there was a sense of community in that. He always sees it as a southern town in New York. A lot of southern people moved up to Harlem to live, to try and get a better life, and ended up living in kind of squalor. So you had all these different races and religions, black, white, a lot of Jewish Americans, all living in this area. Everybody's fighting through the same thing. So when he's really young, he sees almost a camaraderie between people because you're all fighting the same fight, but you're not. And as he grew up, he became increasingly aware of the racial and economic tension around him, leading many to suicide, which was a subject that obsessed him through life. I don't have it in here, but I'll tell you a quick story about one kid they called Johnny on the spot. They called him that because he was always where he was supposed to be the exact time he was supposed to be there. Well, he was a pretty dark-skinned kid, and he was dating a girl who was a, come from a family of light-skinned black people. And there was always kind of this argument about, well, you shouldn't be dating him, he's too dark-skinned. So, the girl broke up with him for it. So, he grabs a gun, goes to their house, knocks on the door. When the father opens the door, right when he opens the door, shoots himself in the head. That was three doors down from where James Baldwin lived. So that's really his first uh, experience with suicide. It's not his last. Other people around him will commit suicide. He will actually try to com- he will actually try to commit suicide about four times in his life. So suicide is th- kind of something that follows him around.
1: It's going
0: to make me sad. Yeah, it is what it is. Now, in 1929, Jimmy started at PS24, a small and frail child bearing the scars of poverty and malnutrition. They ate the corned beef that they got from home relief. His mother would fry it, boil it, bake it, mix it with potatoes or rice, and beat it with a hammer. But nothing worked to make it edible, so the children mostly just gagged on it. There There you go. Uh, The principal at the school was Mrs. Gertrude E. Ayer, the first black principal in New York City.
1: Congratulations. Yes.
0: Quote, I loved and feared the lady, for she really was a lady, and a great one, with that trembling passion only 12-year-olds can feel. Ayers made sure that teachers looked out for little Jimmy, she saw from the beginning that he was special. By the time he was in fifth grade, he was showing his talent for research and writing. He fell in love with reading, first Uncle Tom's Cabin, then A Tale of Two Cities. He's a huge Charles Dickens fan. Um, he'll go to a lot of Dickens movies. When he gets older, he'll still be a huge Dickens fan. Oh, if he, they only knew. He began spending all of his free time at the 135th Street Library. In junior high, he won a prize for a short story he wrote for a church newspaper, and the church elders took note. His mother was delighted about his potential, but David wanted him to follow in his footsteps and become a preacher.
1: Be like, fuck you, stepdad.
0: Well, we'll see what happens.
1: Well, I know he doesn't, because he becomes...
0: (laughs) Oh, we'll see what happens.
1: Well, he may have became a preacher for a short time. But...
0: Now, also at the school around sixth grade, he met a white school teacher named Aurelia Miller, whom he called Billy. No explanation on why. Quote, Certainly partly because of her, who arrived in my terrifying life so soon, that I never really managed to hate white people. All it takes is one good person. Yeah. And he'll he'll meet several. So don't don't let his uh, home life with his horrible stepfather get get to you. He meets several good people who will be very kind to him. So, now Billy and Gertrude both recognized that James was far ahead of his class, and they decided that Billy, being the new theater project intern, was to pay special attention to him. James became her assistant. Billy and her sister would sometimes bring clothes for the Baldwin kids and would regularly stop by the house between 1935 and 1939. So it's four years they're helping them out. Not in a uh, patronizing, pitiful way, but in a we love these kids and we want to help out type way.
1: Yeah, like a teacher helping out students. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of teachers.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what they were doing. Now, Billy also started taking James to the theater to see plays and movies. They loved, again, go to go see Dickens. She had Mrs. Baldwin's permission. His mother approved of all these outings. Stepfather, however, did not, though he was too much of a coward to tell the white teachers no. James would also go to their house for dinners and discussion, usually about politics and racial oppression, even though James was pretty young for those types of discussions. So you have to remember... That he was already facing facing racial oppression firsthand, so it's not that big of a stretch to sit down and talk to him about it. He's, he's the type of person you just kind of forgot how old he was when you're talking to him, and you just you just talk.
1: Yeah, I I had a lot of those types of conversations when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, it was from these sit downs that James learned the possibility of political change and suspected quote. White people did not act as they did because they were white, but for some other reason. And he saw Billy as someone he could trust because she, too, was hassled by the police, mostly because she cared for young black kids, a story he liked to tell about when she took him and some of his siblings to get ice cream from the police station, whom were handing it out for free, but clearly not expecting colored kids. Quote, I don't remember anything Bill said. I just remember her face as she stared at the cop, clearly intending to stand there until the ice cream all over the world melted, or until the earth's surface froze. And she got us our ice cream, saying "Thank you." I remember as we left.
1: I would, I would do that too. That would, that would be the type of shit. Like motherfucker, this says free ice cream. It doesn't say anything about color. Give us our fucking free ice cream.
0: Fine. Here's your ice cream.
1: Thank you. Yeah.
0: That was also one of these outings to the theater where James found Betty Davis and her large, popping eyes. Everybody knows about Betty Davis' eyes. Big, bulging, almost out of your head. Much like James Baldwin. It, It was here where he noticed that not only could ugliness be beautiful, but it could be associated with talent. James would write about Billy and her family years later in Notes of a Native Son. They parted ways in 1939 when Billy took a new job and James got more into church and was told to steer clear of the unholy ways of theater and politics. The church really kind of gets its nails into him for a little while, and uh, he kind of changes. there's one story about David, his his younger brother, going into James' room. Well, they all had kind of one room. But going to a desk and pulling open a drawer that's usually filled with, like, movie pamphlets and clay for molding. And all that stuff had been thrown out and was replaced with a Bible. So, it was one of those. Yeah, the
1: church often does not
0: like the arts. Yeah. Now, when James entered Frederick Douglass Jr. High School, he met two more teachers, this time black men, that would impact his life. County Cullen and Herman W. Porter. Two men that used their intelligence to confront racism and the loss of self-esteem that resulted from it. Cullen brought James into the literary club and worked with him on his poetry and fiction. He was also seen as ugly and was illegitimate and had issues with the stepfather. Also, Cullen was gay, and even though James was too young to truly understand, this was a sort of instinctive understanding between the two. Cullen took over as a kind of father figure for James. He was everything his stepfather wasn't. And Porter brought him into the Douglas Pilot, the school's magazine, which James eventually became editor of. He instilled the importance of discipline and self-reliance. Also, unlike his stepfather, Porter was able to survive and hold his own in a white-dominated world. David accused Porter of corrupting his son with books by white devils. He had no problem standing up to the black teachers. But if the white teachers were there, that's when he became a beaten dog. Yeah. as to say.
1: You dickless son of a bitch.
0: (laughs) Now, Baldwin graduated from Frederick Douglass in 1938, leading into a summer where sexuality and religion would come crashing around him, two subjects that would be central to his life and work. One day, while running errands for his mom, a tall man, mid-30s, Asked him to go to the store for him. James agreed, hoping to earn some money. He went with the man to what he thought was the man's house to get his payment. When on the second landing, the man stopped, touched James on the face, told him he was cute, and then began to touch him elsewhere, sexually. James was horrified and aroused.
1: I like when you do that to me. <laughs>
0: A 30-year-old doing it to a 14-year-old, though. It's, it's a little different. 14?
1: You said he had graduated.
0: From junior high. Oh, I thought you said high school. Frederick Douglass Jr. High School. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, I know. That's, that's sexual harassment. We're getting
0: into William S. Burroughs territory. Here. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no. Yeah.
0: Now, a noise from a landing above scared the man enough to give James, for him to give James the money and ran off. James went home, threw the money out the bathroom window. He didn't want anything part of it. But it still scared him. And it scared him enough from his quote-unquote violation that he soon found the Lord in order to protect himself. He was hoping religion would mean safety from others and from himself, who at age 14 said he had become, he feared, quote, one of the most depraved people on Earth. Because that's how you feel about yourself when somebody does something like that to you. You you don't feel disgusted at them. You feel disgusted with yourself.
1: So he's going to pray the gay away?
0: Uh, He's going to pray that he... Uh, I don't know if I want to say pray the gay away because he's not real sure about the whole gay thing. He just knows that he's different and I think he's hoping that maybe the church will not make will make him not different
1: it's like sending kids away to the the camp to take the gay away something
0: like that yeah now his Bullshit. friend his friend author moore model for elijah in go tell it on the mountain started taking james with him to church now this church that they went to was ran by yeah. a fairly corrupt preacher a female preacher called mother horn and um, after a while, the, the Moors decided to go to another church. Well, they decided that James should go with them, that he shouldn't be there. And this kind of pissed off the church. And one lady actually grabs him by the arm the last day. He's there, some old lady, and gets real close and, and like says like she's like chewing the air as she talked. And kind of spits it into his ear that uh, God will never love people like you. Because he has scoliosis. So it makes him walk kind of feminine. And it's not like that severe scoliosis, but he's got a case of scoliosis. So he walks kind of infeminate and he talks a certain way. So people are kind of picking up on he might be a little, you know, and the fact that he's black, the fact that sexually he might be different than everybody else. They're kind of throwing it back at him. Be like, well, you're leaving our church. Well, God doesn't want anything to do with you anyway. So this is really his first experience with Christian hypocrisy. Which, get it in there soon so you can get out while you still can.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that going on today.
0: There's been a lot of that going on forever. But soon, he was saved. That wasn't enough. He knew that he had to be the one doing the saving. Just being saved wasn't enough for James. He wanted to save people. So in late 1938, he became one of the core of apprentice preachers. And he quickly demonstrated a gift for preaching and became something of a sensation in Harlem. He learned the effect and thrill of power and glory that came with the effective use of the word. This success at the pulpit also led To greater self-assurance at home, standing up to his stepfather and siding openly against him. So it, it wasn't all bad. It gave him the confidence, being able to stand up and preach in front of people and save people, as he thought, gave him the confidence to finally tell his stepfather that he was fucking wrong and to fuck off. Yeah. Which is great. Tell your fathers to fuck off.
1: Or either parent that is doing wrong. Yeah.
0: Now, that fall, he was accepted into the prestigious DeWitt-Clinton High School in the Bronx, a left-leaning school bent on academic and social achievement and were politically active. James was admired for his writing, and he was elected to the student court. He also began working on the school's literary magazine, The Magpie, where he made friends with Richard Avedon, who will become a fairly famous photographer, Sol Steen, and Emil Capuya. James eventually, again, became the editor of the magazine. Now, there, the four would discuss literature, politics, history, and religion, things he could not talk about at church or at home. And this kind of starts a mental struggle with him being in the church and his own repressed sexuality, because these are things he can talk with openly with these guys. Uh, while they're working on the magpie, they can just sit there and they can talk about all this shit. But all of a sudden, now you go to church, place you're supposed to feel safe, with all these people who are supposed to understand, you can't talk about any of this stuff.
1: No, because they're judgmental fuckheads. Yes,
0: and it's another, it's another experience with again the hypocrisy that he was seeing in Christians and Christianity, and it was really starting to tear at him because he's spending he's spending a lot of time changing his whole life to preach to people and it's something he'll he'll continue to preach to people as he goes forward but he's not going to preach to religion no it's going to be a different type of saving people it's going to be saving people the american soul from itself and everything that it, that racism homophobia and everything that you know kind of america stood for for a long time rather than saving its soul for god Right. right Now, in the Magpie, James wrote "Peace on Earth: A story of Soldiers in wartime forming a brotherhood, the first of many all-male brotherhood brotherhoods in James's fiction, with the main character John, also someone that would come up again in later writings. The story concerned the death of some of the Brotherhood and John's steadfast faith in the face of senseless war. In 1940, James had learned through his own intuition that he was, indeed, illegitimate. This, on top of his already tortured doubt of himself and torn between his role as a preacher and his understanding that he was different, he had become desperate. He was missing school, starting to fail courses, and he seemed he had nowhere to turn. Emil Capuglia suggested that he meet famed black painter Buford Delaney. Now, this would be one of, if not the most important meeting of James's life. Because Buford, in Buford, James would find true support. A father that loved him like a son, a black man that had succeeded in a white world, that proved that he could do it well without giving in or being subservient to said white world, They were kindred spirits, and although James did not know yet about his homosexuality or the demands of his vocation, he would be able to lean on Buford for support, as he himself was homosexual, a minister's son, and an artist. Huh. Yes. He taught James about art, music, mostly jazz and blues. They went to galleries, concerts, and James got to meet other successful black artists and musicians. Uh, Buford, he's going to look at Buford as a father figure for literally the rest of Buford's life, which is, you know, got plenty of time left in it. And he's going to be cr When Buford finally dies, he will be absolutely devastated by him. A lot more devastated than when his stepfather dies. Put it that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, when my stepmom dies, I'm going to be completely
0: demolished. I would think Buford is going to be more on the th- your friend Sue that you look up. Buford's more like that than an actual stepmom. A stepdad. He's he's a figure.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. Because when I didn't cry when my egg donor died. Yes, you did.
0: I cried for like a minute. No, you cried. You cried for quite a while. But I think it was the. I think it's the, sh- it was the, sh- again, we will get into this, but it was the shock, I think. It was
1: 10 minutes. I cried and... when I found out, and I cried while I was on the phone with my stepmom trying to get a hold of my brother.
0: You cried for a while.
1: No, that was it. <laughs>
0: okay. I was I was there, remember. I was there, but okay. I
1: remember. Okay,
0: okay. Now, by the time he was 16, he was writing a play called These Two, in which Tom, a young criminal, convinces a kind boy named David, a name he will use often, to help him rob a shop. And in the process, a police officer is killed and Tom mortally wounded. And in the guilt of both of these situations, David takes his own life. (laughs) So, a lot of names are going to keep coming up that he uses David quite a bit in writing. Again, two brothers named David and stepfather. And suicide is there quite a bit. Now, by now, uh, he's starting to feel torn between two worlds and personas church or writing being the boy preacher or the artist following the step the following his stepfather's dreams or his own finally he realized that the only way to save his soul was to leave the church you go dude now by 1942 james was spending as much time in greenwich village as he could that's where Buford delaney lived World War II had turned Harlem into a true ghetto wasteland where white soldiers dare not go. In the village, he was able to find various odd jobs after school, and the Bohemians there weren't concerned about his being black. It was a place for talk, ideas, and art, but before he could truly settle into life there, he would need to earn more money. Not just for himself, but also for his family, because David's condition had deteriorated badly. James had to go search for him one evening and found him sitting on a bench in, at the 135th Street Lexington Avenue subway station, confused and lost. The once seemingly omnipotent minister spent most of his time, quote, locked up in his terrors, hating and fearing every living soul, staring out the apartment window.
1: Aww.
0: There's also um, a little story... James would talk about how he would kind of go into the front room in the middle of the night, and he would see David just kind of pacing the floor and angry preaching to himself. And I remember this is the early 1940s. I'm thinking it's probably some form of dementia, Alzheimer's, that's taken him, but that stuff wasn't really as recognized then as it is now. You had Alzheimer's or dementia, you kind of throw it in a loony bin. Yeah. In mid-1942, Emil Capuya had gotten James a job working a shovel in New Jersey, just manual labor. He hated the work, not just because he wasn't a fan of manual labor, but also because in New Jersey, he was confronted by a level of prejudice that shocked even him. Uh, one evening, he went with a friend to the Trenton, to Trenton to see a movie. Afterwards, the two went to a diner called the American Diner, go figure, and were told, quote, we don't serve Negroes here. The scene is described in Notes of a Native Son, that when he's back in the street, quote, all of the people I could see, and many more than that, were moving towards me, against me, and everyone was white. Something in him snapped. He walked to another fashionable restaurant, sat down, and again was told by a white rape waitress that they didn't serve his kind so with a rage he grabbed a water mug and hurled it at the waitress missing and hitting the mirror behind the bar with just glass everywhere
1: it's kind of like a scene from um what was that show we were watching with the uh the hp lovecraft show
0: oh lovecraft country yeah 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 now they were able to get away him and the friend but this would be the beginning of the race war going on within himself for the rest of his life some, some of that psychoanalysis that I was talking about that got brought up in the book And it was now that he began to wonder if his stepfather was right about the white devils Now by June of 1943 he had lost his job for the third and final time and had to return home to find his mother pregnant, and his stepfather laying in a mental hospital bed on Long Island. So he had to take a job at a meatpacking plant for $29 a week to support his family. His mother urged him to visit his stepfather, and eventually he relented and went with his aunt to see him at the hospital. He had thought that he hated the man, but once he saw him lying in the bed shriveled and dying, he realized, quote, it was only that I had hated him, and I wanted to hold on to this hatred. I imagine that one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense, once hate is gone, that they will be forced to deal with the pain. Now this was on July 28th, 1943. The next day, David died. And Paula, James's youngest sister, was born. Damn. Yeah, he, he died the same day she was born, the day after he went and saw him for the final time. So, was he holding out for James to come see him, or was it just coincidence?
1: Probably coincidence.
0: Now, over the next few months, he jumped from job to job, sometimes losing them before he could even start them. He took to wandering the streets at night, hiding out at libraries. He began drinking a lot, and with the stress of financial insecurity, he had a nervous breakdown. He would use this time of his life as the basis for Rufus in his book, Another Country. He went to Buford's to clear his head and made the decision that if he stayed to support his family, he would end up resenting them. He needed to get out of Harlem. He moved in with Buford and would actually never live in Harlem again. Now, Buford ended up introducing him to Connie Williams, who ran the Calypso, a small restaurant downtown. Connie asked him to be her waiter a job he took to quite well. So she let him take food to his brothers when they came to visit him and had a place to stay when he needed it. James started making the rounds to all the various Bohemian-style bars and restaurants, eventually landing on the White Horse Tavern, where he met the kings of the Bohemians, our old friends, the Beat Generation, namely Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. Burroughs did not move to the village until late 1943, so it is unclear how much exposure they had to one another. When I read that he had met the Beat Generation, I started getting nervous. Yeah,
1: because you're tired of hearing Burroughs. And
0: he's the—he's he, one of the worst people ever.
1: And if he had met Burroughs, then Burroughs would have introduced him to butt stuff.
0: Uh, well, I mean, he was going to be introduced to that, that anyway. He would have introduced him to fucking morphine and... a bunch of other drugs that james didn't do
1: yeah but let's be honest Burroughs would have mounted that cowboy
0: yeah now but the calypso was his main stopping ground that's where he met many very important and influential people like malcolm x burt lancaster ertha kitt and a one marlon brando who he was very good friends with, and he actually said that he was in love with Marlon Brando, but you'll come to find out why that never became a thing between them. Because Marlon Brando, a lot of people don't realize, him and Richard Pryor actually had a love affair for a while.
1: Yeah, but they they both swing both ways.
0: Yes. So it would make sense that him and James Baldwin also would. You'll find out here in a little bit they, they, they never do. Now, he quickly became somewhat of a no- notorious figure. He had found a new congregation to whom he could preach, and people loved listening to him talk. They would sometimes call ahead to ask if Jimmy was working, and they even dressed him up as a little preacher for a costume ball. Nice. Now, through all this, James was still searching for his sexual identity. Many one-night stands with men, and even though he came out to Amelia Caput. Emil Capuya, he still continued to have relationships with women, even going as far as to claim to be in love with a Jewish divorcee named Jesse. But it seemed that women were always either trying to save him from his homosexuality or to get their Negro experience in the village. He didn't want to be a, a stud yeah, he didn't. For, the, for the white yeah. woman. But
1: now, things weren't Because much- once you go black, you never go back
0: many people go back they're just usually disappointed, disappointed <laughs> now things weren't much easier with men though he would be called queer by men that were much more loving with him when they were in private you know that type of yeah guy. The, yeah the closet yeah many Republican senators and congressmen <laughs> And that's the kind of man he was attracted to. That's one of the reasons him and Brando never hit it off, because Brando was kind of open with it a little bit more. He wasn't somebody who was going to be mean to him in public and then be real loving to him in private. He was going to treat him the same either way. He kind of liked the guy that was going to be real manly and real, oh no, queer, fine, in uh, public. But then when you get in private, he's different.
1: He wanted the the macho, burly man, and but, then but he did, the sensitive guy. But he
0: wanted the macho. He wanted he wanted that type of man that nobody knew was gay. He wanted somebody who was kind of hiding it. It's 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 weird the yeah. kind of man he wanted, and it, it kind of all steps back from maybe some of the uh, maybe that violation from the 30 or the guy that 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 simple of a thing can can do that to you and when he would start to fall in love with a man he would avoid any expression of sexual interest so as not to ruin any friendship so if he starts to feel like he's in love with somebody it's another reason why him and marlon brando never got together because he was such good friends with marlon brando he didn't want to ruin the friendship by bringing sex into
1: it yeah that makes sense
0: even though it seemed like he would be too caught up with trying to live a certain type of life, he was still trying to write. In school, he had started a novel about a child in Harlem that wanted to kill his hated church deacon father by poisoning the communion chalice. It's a theme going on, if you can't tell.
1: be a <laughs> interesting way to kill someone, because yeah. you wouldn't only kill the deacon father, but possibly
0: a more of members
1: people. of the... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, during communion.
0: (laughs) Now, the novel at this time was called Crying Holy. It would also sometimes be called In My Father's House. I'm going to jump from one to another, but it's the same story I'm talking about when I say Crying Holy or In My Father's House. Same thing. Now, he would work at nights at the Calypso, drink there until very late, and then head home and write for several hours until he can no longer stay awake, pass out while he was writing. Uh, A pattern that he would continue for the rest of his life. It's kind of the way he did things. His white acquaintances became his biggest and most loyal congregation. Listening to his sermons and suffering his anger, groups of well-meaning, committed white liberals, admirers, and disciples were essential to his eventual literary success. In 1945, after he had dropped the Calypso job, his disciples, the Birches, started a literary magazine called This Generation, to which James would contribute a chapter from In My Father's House, which would later become a play called The Amen Corner, and some long poems about his stepfather. When he would meet with them for dinners, he would get argumentative about the magazine, demanding and sarcastic, calling Claire Birch Miss Whitey and all the others bleeding-heart liberals. The guru-prophet would hand out assignments like Rewriting the Gettysburg Address to reflect the reality of America, something Claire was still writing in nineteen in 1989. She continued for 45 years, almost, of rewriting the Gettysburg Address because that's what he told her to do. Goddamn. He's almost... He,
1: He's the music man. He's
0: up, he's, he's, they see him as a prophet, but he's, he's just this side of a fucking cult leader. The music man. Except he doesn't, he doesn't, uh, abuse his power and make it, you know, people do stuff for him that they shouldn't be doing.
1: That's why I said the music man. He's
0: trying to save them.
1: And he does save the town. Mm. With music. But. Okay. He's saving the world with literature.
0: All right. Now, this isn't to say that James was always filled with confidence. Uh, He constantly worried about abandoning his family and his sexuality and if he had the talent to be a writer. Like most of us from time to time, plagued with self-doubt, he would spend hours at night crying and contemplating suicide. Then he met a young woman named Esther, who enjoyed the bit of In My Father's House that she had heard him read aloud. She introduced him to famed black author of Native Son, Richard Wright, one of James's literary idols. The two hit it off, drank bourbon, and James told them about In My Father's House. Wright wanted to see it and asked for the 60 pages James had said he had written. He hadn't. So James went home and wrote as fast as he could and a few days later sent the 60 pages out. Wright liked what he saw and him and his editor at Harper & Brothers, Ed Aswell, recommended James for a Eugene F. Sexton Foundation Fellowship including a $500 grant. A lot of money back then. He won it in November, and it seemed that things were turning out in his favor, even meeting with Harper's president, Frank McG- Frank McGregor, over lunch. But soon, the Saxton money was gone, and he was still having trouble finishing the book. When he sent the finished product in, Harper told him that it wasn't good enough to publish.
1: What kind of shit is that? You no,
0: know, it was... Well, They didn't think it was good enough. He was afraid it wasn't going to be good enough, and he was right, apparently. Today's episode is brought to you by Kind Bar. I absolutely love Kind Bars, and I've eaten a lot of them. Let me tell you about the first time I ever had a Kind Bar. I was working at a steel foundry, and I only had a couple hours left to go, but I was tired and dirty and really starting to drag. So, I saw some Kind Bars in our cafeteria, looked good so I grabbed one and it was delicious and it gave me the little burst of energy I needed to get through the rest of my night without feeling bad about my late evening snack or heavy from a ton of refined sugar and artificial ingredients. And that's the big difference. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real recognizable ingredients and to empower the food snack community and our listeners to make better informed choices about health. Some of my favorites are the blueberry vanilla cashew, fruit and nut, dark chocolate cherry cashew, cranberry almond, and the dark chocolate nuts and sea salt. They're delicious. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that's why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% off or 15% off for military personnel, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Just go to podgo.co slash kind. That's podgo.co slash kind. Kind Bar, creating a kinder and healthier world, one act, one snack at a time. In 1946, Wright moved to Paris, but James had met other literary liberals that could help him. Saul Levitas of the new leader, Randall Jarrell of The Nation, Elliot Cohen and Robert Warshow of The Commentary and Philip Rave of Partisan Review. Now these men would give him the chance to succeed on his own as a writer, mainly in book reviews and essays. His first professionally published work, being in 1947, a review of Gorky's best short stories premiered in the April 12th issue of The Nation. His first published essay came in 1948 in commentary called The Harlem Ghetto, which would also be included in Notes of a Native Son later on. It was about, partially, anti-Semitism in Harlem. And in the fall, he wrote one for the new leader about a horrible southern trip his brother David and three friends took. See, they had formed a singing group called The Melodeers and they were touring with Henry Wallace's Progressive Party on his campaign. James focused on the hypocrisy of the white, li- li- white liberal radicals and the irony of the group's situation, a trademark for James going forward. See, as long as the Melodeers behaved and performed as they were told, they were representatives of the black community. But as soon as they wanted things like, I don't know, money, Food or decent shelter, they became uppity, word I will not use, and told to find their own way home. See, a prophet's job isn't to sugarcoat things, it's to remind people of the truth. And many people were angry about these essays Jews and blacks over the Harlem one, and white Southern progressives over the Melodiers one. But with outrage comes attention. And people wanted to hear what James had to say. The truth. No, they don't want to hear the truth. They want to hear what he thinks the truth is. And then they want to complain about it.
1: Well, yeah, everybody wants to complain.
0: But even though people listened, in his heart, James didn't want to be an essayist. He wanted to be a novelist. And since In My Father's House wasn't going anywhere, he decided to write about a 1943 murder case that he called ignorant armies now this book would not be published he lost the story in his mind but from this he would get the bones for two other stories he would write years later giovanni's room and another country james would say later that he wasn't able to make progress on his books because he still had unconfronted he still hadn't confronted his sexual issues and the problems he had had with his stepfather he needed to face his demons He was obsessed by the question of his identity. Was he a Negro? Was he a homosexual? And was it necessary to live by these labels?
1: You're both. You're neither. You're you're you.
0: That's the question that he's wrestling with. You gotta remember, he's really young. He's in his, his early 20s. He's really young. So he's still arguing. He's still... Going over this over and over in his head of who am I? What do I stand for? What defines me? It's going to take him a while. Your
1: 20s are that age where you figure that out.
0: They're your most fun and your most horrible all at the same time.
1: Yeah, and then your 30s just become your most horrible. (laughs)
0: Fair enough. Now, he was finally able in October of 1948 to publish a piece of fiction in commentary. A short called Previous Condition, wherein Peter, a black man in his 20s, is kicked out of his apartment because he's black and he has to lean on his Jewish, Jewish friend Jules, modern at, modeled after Emilia Kapuja. He and a friend, Teddy Pelotowski, whom he says was the first love of his life, even though Teddy was heterosexual and the inspiration for Joey in Giovanni's room, they tried to create a book of essays and photos about the storefront churches in Harlem. Now the book never went anywhere, but the three-page proposal for the book was enough to win James a Rosenwald fellowship, giving him enough money to do what he knew he had to do. On November 11th, he told his mother and his siblings that he was moving to Paris that day. Wow. He had it planned in August at his birthday. But he couldn't bring himself to tell them. So he goes to their house and goes, Hey, I'm moving to Paris. And then he gets in a cab and leaves.
1: That's while, dedication.
0: While his mother's standing outside with her arms crossed, her his sister is up in the window crying. He can see her. He has $40 left in his pocket.
1: I'm At least he'll be accepted in France.
0: Well, and here's... Here's the crazy thing. When James landed in Paris, he did it into the open arms of many that were excited to see the new up-and-coming black author that had been shaking up the New York magazine scene with his defiant and controversial essays. Robert Richard Wright was already there telling everybody about it. So when he gets there, there's already an entourage waiting.
1: Well, that, and I meant that England... And that ho- all of Europe was more open to homosexuality and they weren't as racist as America.
0: But see, and that's true. And in that will become another issue for James. We'll get to it here in a minute. Richard Wright was one of them that was there, helped put him up in the Hotel de Romo. Uh, there are a lot of French names and places being thrown around here, so I'll just get to the ones that you need to know, and we'll just forget the rest. Okay. okay. So there's George Salamos, who changed his name to Themistocles Hoytus. Asia Benavisti, a Jew from Istanbul. Uh, they formed a new magazine called Zero. Uh, writer jean Paul Sattar, an old New York friend named Mason Hoffenberg, and Otto Frederick. And some bars they like to go to called the... René Blanc, and the Feha Cro I looked them up on how to pronounce them. Yeah, but
1: you still sound Italian when you're saying them.
0: I sound American who's trying his hardest. All right? Fuck you. (laughs) These are homosexual bars that would be the models for the bar in Giovanni's room. Now, they lived a very bohemian lifestyle, living in rundown hotels and apartments, sharing everything from food, money, and clothes, to alcohol, drugs, pot mostly, and sexual partners. Much like the Beat Generation. But James still had the non-bohemian friendships, and he still went to the homes of white liberals, mostly Jews, Jewish middle-class Americans in Paris, to preach in the evenings. It was while in Paris he realized that it didn't matter there whether he was black or or white. In Paris, he was seen as an American, which was a relief in one sense, and still a bit troubling in another. Still bigotry, just not for his color, but his nationality. Yeah. There's there's one French woman who's, who uh, says in French, oh, look there at the Americans, as he's walking with a bunch of white people. She doesn't see that he's black, just sees him as a dirty American.
1: Yeah, I'd rather be known as a dirty American than be known as a black or a
0: gay. He's very conflicted by it. He really is. Because for so long, his entire life, he's been seen as a black person, and now he's starting to to be seen as himself as you know, on you know, maybe gay. And now it's neither one of those things. Now he's just a dirty American. So it's it's he's always being thrown he's always having bigotry thrown at him, but it's always for something different. And it gets really confusing for him. Now, he did some writing while he was there, an essay called The Negro in Paris about, well, being a black American in Paris, uh, published in The Reporter. And another that is still debated over to this day called Everybody's Protest Novel. Now, as his first contribution to Zero, it questioned the value of protest literature, which put him in the opposite corner from Richard Wright. It called for integrity and freedom of art from ideology, did not go over well. And another essay called Alas, Poor Richard, James tells us, James tells about the first time he, they saw one another after it was published and Wright causing a scene telling James that he he betrayed not just him, but African-Americans in general. They would get in awkward conversations over it from time to time, but it didn't ruin their relationship. They were able to put things aside. But Richard Wright spent all of his time saying that uh, your art should be used for ideology. You should, you should use your art to fight. And James was saying the exact opposite. That art should be art. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, He wrote for Zero's second issue on an article on homosexuality called The Perservation of Innocence about the violence against homosexuals in American life and literature. And even though he had two very successful essays and a few book reviews published, he still lacked self-esteem in his talent and life in general. But always the social butterfly, James was still occupying his time with others. One of which was an American Frank Price that had advanced him money so he could have time to write. So James started yet another novel. This one called So Long at the Fair, eventually being changed to Another Country. Now, this is where it started to get scary for me. Because the Imstacles had recently visited Paul Bowles in Tangier. (laughs) Was Burroughs in Tangier at the time? and suggested to James that they go there and work on their stuff for Zero and their novels. (sighs) They make it to Marcellus, but missed the boat to Tangiers, so they hung out in the hotel and waited for money to be wired to them for a boat ticket. James worked while there using a second-hand portable typewriter. He worked for several days until the desk clerk asked him to stop typing because the proprietor was dying in the room next to his. Yeah. When the man finally died, James went back to work, understandably, with death on his mind, and ended up writing a story called The Death of the Prophet, which would be published in commentary in March of 1950 about a boy named Johnny unable to come to terms with his father's death. Now, James got sick and had to be hospitalized for a gland problem, and once he got out, Headed back to Paris. No, he did not go to Tangiers. No, he did not meet with William S. Burroughs. Yay. I read Paul Bowles and Tangiers, and I went, mother fucker. Every time. So he was that close. He was that close to me saying, fuck this, I'm picking a different author. <laughs> <laughs> now, when he got back, he had to go to a different hotel than where he had stayed before. The Grand Hotel de Bouc. He wrote his family, let them know that he missed them, and he hoped to come home soon. He wasn't having a good time in Paris, honestly. He felt, he, he, he was really homesick. But first, this hotel that he went to would play home to a scene that would again scar and change James. In early December, James came across an acquaintance from New York doing Paris on his parents' money. The man, we aren't given his name, wanted to leave his hotel, the Hotel de Dos Alba. They spoke and which means two trees. Yeah. They spoke and James suggested that he moved to his hotel with him. When he arrived, he bought, when he arrived, he brought a sheet from the other hotel as a souvenir and gave it to James, who had been having trouble getting the staff to change his sheets. Apparently, the French don't believe in the same custom of taking things from hotels the way Americans do and are pretty strict about petty theft. Because the police went to the friend's room looking for said sheet. They didn't find it and were told to look in James's room. Lo and behold, there it was, and both men were arrested. Wow. For a sheet.
1: Yeah. Which is what you call a blanket.
0: For me, it is. Uh, They both spent the night in lockup. James was terrified. Not only was he in jail, but in a foreign jail where he didn't really understand anyone. And maybe worst of all, he couldn't rally against the ones that imprisoned him for his race because that wasn't the problem. Here, he wasn't a despised black man, just simply an American. This arrest worsened his already deepening depression. He had descended, quote, to a lower, lower point than any I could ever in my life have imagined. Lower, far than anything I had seen in that Harlem, which I had so hated and so loved. The escape from which had soon become the greatest direction of my life. He was taken to Thren. That's how it's pronounced.
1: Okay. Thren. It's
0: a city outside Paris. Okay. Prison in the city outside Paris, and he had his shoelaces and belt taken away, as they do. He had to wait several days for a hearing because of a lack of an interpreter until after Christmas. So Christmas in Paris was spent in prison. Eventually, on the 27th, the case was dismissed, and when the case was brought up in court, the room erupted in laughter. This made his depression even worse. Felt like they were laughing at him. They were laughing at the fact that this fucker just missed Christmas because he stole a bed sheet, which he didn't even steal. Right. When he returned to the hotel, the owner told him to give her the money for the room in one hour or to leave. So he went upstairs, tied a bed sheet around an old dirty water pipe, stood on a chair, put the rope around his neck and jumped. The water pipe snapped. In a sort of re-baptization from the flood of water from broken pipe, James burst into laughter, threw some clothes in a bag, and ran out of the hotel to never return. This moment would show up in a story equal in Paris. A few days later, Jem- James met a 17-year-old boy at a club. A very important meeting. Lucian. Happersberger, a swiss searching for excitement and success in paris not the same lucian from the william s burroughs story it's a lot of over uh, uh, over well he
1: wasn't 17 in williams s burroughs anyway so
0: and and by now he would have been in prison for murdering a man named david <laughs> <Now> <laughs> so he... many coincidences <laughs> Now, he would be the first inspiration for Giovanni in Giovanni's room. I say first because somebody else will come later. Uh, And who James would say was the love of his life for the rest of his life. In fact, most of the people that were at the club that night will end up being characters in Giovanni's room. So, if you read Giovanni's room, a large portion of the people who were in it were at this bar this night. Okay. So, uh, soon the two were inseparable, a relationship based around laughter, food, sex, and alcohol. James encouraged Lucien to paint, and James continued to work on Crying Holy and a few other short stories and essays. Eventually, the two became so close that the entourage of companions that James had acquired over the short time he was in Paris evaporated. I don't need any. I got Lucien and I'm good. Okay. But that's not to say that the relationship was perfect. Because Lucian was easygoing and relaxed about the whole thing. James was not. James wanted a mate, a committed relationship. Lucian wanted a friend with benefits that understood his need and attraction to women.
1: So Lucian was by. Yeah.
0: Okay. But there lies the problem. Because most people would say, fine. You don't want just me, then I'm gone. But James was only attracted to men who were only sometimes willing to act gay for money, for shelter, or protection. And he couldn't be in a relationship with an out-and-out gay man because that wasn't what he wanted. So he couldn't just say, fine, peace out, bro, I'm out. Because Lucian is the exact kind of guy that he wants to be with. But in turn is the problem that that person doesn't want to be in a a committed relationship with you.
1: Yeah. The catch-22.
0: Yeah. Now, James became more and more dependent on Lucian. Every lover James would have after him would have to compete with his memory, his possibility of returning, or his presence just in the next room. One story goes that James and an un- unnamed man slash lover, laying in a bed with each other, crying as they listened to Lucian make love to the man's girlfriend in the room above <laughs> Yeah. Right?
1: yeah that oh okay
0: now, the first of these lo- other lovers that competed with Lucien was a Frenchman that lived in a small room near the porte de Vincennes. This room was Giovanni's room. And the Frenchman was the thoroughly committed Giovanni that James wished Lucian could be. In fact, he was so committed and worried about losing James to Lucian or anyone else that when he left every morning, he would lock James inside the room. Now he's getting weird. Eventually, he got word to Lucian, and Lucian set him free. Uh, This would all come out in the book. This is all part of the book. By now, James had been in Paris for about two and a half years, and other than a few essays and articles, he had little to show for it. Crying Holy was still unfinished. Lucien was still unwilling to commit. Then, just after Easter of 1950, James met Mary Painter, an American embassy economist. Lucian and James took quickly to going to Mary's and listening to classical music, smoking, drinking, talking, and Mary liked to read them cookbooks. I know. If you get into a group that likes to do really weird, eccentric shit, somebody from that group is probably going to be very successful, and somebody else is probably going to die of a drug addiction. That's what I've come to learn.
1: Probably, and someone's going to enjoy reading out loud.
0: Cookbooks. Well, I like reading cookbooks, but it's not usually reading the whole thing out, out loud. It's like, ooh, a Dutch baby. Ooh.
1: Yeah, you look <laughs> at the picture, look at the name of the the we item. We have all that. We
0: have everything for it. For that, we can make this right now.
1: Yeah, but you don't actually read out the.
0: She did. They read the cookbooks. recipe. The
1: <laughs> instructions. The cookbooks
0: back then were so horrible too, because they had like they had like tuna fish and Jello and shit like that. Gefilte the fish. Uh-huh. <laughs> Now, James loved Mary more than he had any other woman. Even though they would never be lovers, James said when he realized he could never marry Mary Painter, he could never marry anyone. He, he was totally in love with her, just not sexually. Mm. She would become Hela in Giovanni's room. A lot of people going to be in Giovanni's room. The goddess of death in Norse mythology. There you go. Now, by the fall of 1951, James was back into a depression, mostly about the fact that he had been working on crying holy for a decade and still couldn't finish it. So Lucian decided, after blackmailing his father by saying he had tuberculosis and needed money for treatment, to take James to his home in Switzerland for the winter. Kind of hell of a way to get some money. And they lived off that money for the entire winter. Uh, It was this small mountain town that James would write about in an essay called Stranger in the Village, which appeared in Harper's Magazine in October 1953 about being an African, not an American, in the village, just like the Africans that the local church bought each year for the missionaries. He said they were actually very nice there, and they would say the N-word to him, but they would say it lovingly because I guess... It was it was the n word, but n e g e r, naga, I guess, and so it's not, But it sounds so much like the word that a lot of racists here use that even though they said it lovingly and were happy to see him when they said it, because I guess that just means Negro in Swiss. It sounded so much like the other word, that it constantly put him in a state of depression because they'd scream it at him when he'd walk down the road.
1: I I could see that happening.
0: They'd run up to him and they'd feel his skin uh, because they don't... The only black people they saw were the ones that, again, the missionaries bought, or the church bought for the missionaries. So they'd run up and and they'd they'd touch his hair to see what it felt like, and they'd rub his skin to see if the blackness came off because they they didn't know. It was mostly kids. But this put him in... This put him in a pretty good depression because he kept hearing that word over and over. Yeah. And, it, it, and I get it. I mean, I don't get it, but I get it. He missed home, not Paris, but his actual home. But he knew that he couldn't return until he finished the work he had escaped to Europe to complete. Finally, after years of work and with a shit ton of support from Lucien, February 26, 1952, the two of them took the finally finished manuscript to the post office to mail to New York. Crying holy, sometimes called in my father's house, now known as Go Tell It on the Mountain, and that is where we will pick up for part 2 of James Baldwin. Yay! Have you heard Go Tell It on the Mountain? Yes. Yeah. That's that was his that's his first big one. And it puts them out there in front of everybody. And it really gets things going for them. And
1: Go tell it on the mountain. Don't. Over the hill and everywhere. I'm sorry.
0: So many bad just memories flying through my head.
1: Because of the church song? Yes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what do you think so far? It it, it kind of... It, I hate bringing them up all the time, but it, it, some parts of it have that William S. Burroughs feel to it. The the being abused sexually by somebody he, really young, being He was confused. molested. Well, you remember William S. Burroughs was, too, when the guy who ran the um, uh, Los Alamos, uh, when he came to his house and when he made William S. Burroughs strip down and, and everything and made him get himself hard and all that shit.
1: Yeah, but I mean, you're comparing. Well,
0: it it's all not sexual it's not, abuse is sexual abuse. It's not but exactly the same. I'm saying it, it, there's a lot of that feeling.
1: Yeah, I I get it. I do. Um, maybe it's worse on, um, James. Yeah, because he is black and yeah. he was younger. Yeah. And
0: well, they're about the same age when that type of shit happened, but Burroughs started. Uh, experimenting with that shit long before. Plus, he was molested by his nanny's sister's or nanny's girlfriend's boyfriend or whatever the the veterinarian. You remember? Yeah. So when it was, he was someone like he knew. Yeah. And so it's not that exact- was a
1: complete it, stranger. Yeah.
0: It's yeah, not exactly I mean, the same, but it 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 had that feel to me when I was reading it, when I was writing it yeah, out. Like, it was like they have
1: similar upbringings like, yeah. and the the whole daddy issue, i mean depression and anxiety
0: chasing after someone you're in love with, all that type of which is something that, you know, Burroughs did a little bit. You, and
1: change, you know, constantly changing who you're in love with yeah. based on, you Burroughs know, Burroughs
0: was horrible with that shit. Yes. Yeah. So there's it's uh, they're not they obviously not the same, but it, they have the same type of but I mean, feeling.
1: James has more control over you know,
0: he, he can separate the friendship from the relationship. He knows if yes. he's falling in love with somebody that he needs to not put anything sexual out there because you we know, saw so with Burroughs he fell in love with Allen Ginsberg and he obsessed over him and it was sex, sex, sex and you're with me and and James is able to say okay. I love this guy, but we're best for what we're really good friends, so no sex.
1: And sex will just complicate the friendship and probably ruin it.
0: Yes. Exactly. And James is a lot more intelligent than William S. Burroughs was.
1: Yes, too. you can tell that.
0: And not a spoiled little rich prick.
1: Yeah. And he seems to get his work finished a lot faster. He doesn't keep pushing it off.
0: Well, it took him ten years to write Go Tell It on a Mountain. But
1: he was also working on other stuff during that time. That is too. true. And Burroughs like,
0: didn't start writing until he was much older though. Yes. James never kills his wife, too, which is a plus.
1: Even though that was technically an accident? He
0: knew that gun fired low. I don't want to hear about how it was technically... He knew that gun fired low. Yeah, but he
1: low. was, like, blitzed out of his fucking mind. Which
0: makes it even worse.
1: Yes. So, I mean, even if he was trying to aim, I don't think he had the the dexterity and the depth perception to properly aim... Even if he was trying to properly
0: aim. He should have spent many years in prison. Yes. And he abandoned his children. Yes. James wins. Yeah.
1: Well, James <laughs> is obviously better.
0: <laughs> okay, let's give everybody our socials and stop talking about fucking William S. Burrow. You brought him up. I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we are at open Book on Twitter and Instagram. I am at ACJBAT. Kevin is at... Young E-T-A-M 6 on Twitter and Young E-T-A-M on
0: Instagram. That's very good. We are, we have our email at open A-F-I-N-G book at gmail.com. If there's any authors, what?
1: I am rubbing off on you. Because I spell it out. I know.
0: If there's any authors you want us to cover, any books you want us to cover, if you just want to shoot the shit, send us an email. Let us know what you think of the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you guys. We really would. Seventy, all the good reads. Goodreads, all of them.
1: <laughs> fucker, you interrupted me. Goodreads, all the Goodreads. <laughs> I'm gonna kick you in the balls
0: from underneath the table. You will reach my shins or my knee.
1: I will reach nothing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> goodreads,
1: goodreads. Goodreads.com/slash/open a open a f i n g
0: book. I almost rubbed off on you. You almost just said effing book.
1: Yes, and Goodreads.com/slash/cjbat.
0: What was that again? E-C-J-B-A-T. Okay. Uh, go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash open effing book. Uh, still have stickers if you want them. All your donations go to help this, make this uh, the best show we could possibly make. If a monthly commitment to Patreon is a little bit too much for you to ask, we completely understand. If you still want to help out the show, we are now on buymeacoffee.com at buymeacoffee.com slash book. Uh, $5 $10 $15 however many coffees you'd like to buy us we'll drink them all
1: I love coffee now
0: and uh, it's just a way donate to the show without having to donate every month we don't have the monthly commitment thing set up there yet um, eventually we will when we have special content that we put on there merchandise stuff like that but until then it's just a, it's just a single one time donation thing if that's all you want to do come back in the middle of the week for our weekday cliff notes where we'll cover four books of the week and Stephanie will tell everybody about the new book that she is going to buy, even though I tell her, please don't hit accept or send or add to cart, which she normally does anyway. Yes.
1: Yeah. Oh, speaking of which. ah. Okay, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it, I, I'll send it to Kevin so he can put it on Twitter or maybe I'll add it on the Twitter. So I don't know how many of you are Ransom Rig fans or lee fans. But they're doing a virtual meet-and-greet type thing on the internet.
0: Um, Hence virtual.
1: Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Ransom Riggs added it to his events on his Facebook page. I already got my ticket. And I got a VIP ticket so I can do a one-on-one, one-minute conversation with Ransom Riggs. For those of you who don't know, Ransom Riggs is the author of the Miss Peregrine series. Yeah, what what? Um tickets.
0: What the fuck was that? She literally just raised the roof.
1: <laughs> cuz I'm excited cuz I've gone to one book signing in my entire life. Yes. And that was Cassandra Clare. And I love Cassandra Clare. I love the Mortal Instruments series, but I love Ransom Riggs' books. I love the Miss Peregrine series.
0: I went to one magazine signing that was um, Terry Reynolds when I was... Terry
1: yeah. Reynolds?
0: Yeah, when I was um, younger. and I just, Was that Playboy? No, it was a... Uh, it might have been. I don't know. I didn't actually get... Because I was at work.
1: Okay, so this isn't about you right now. This is about my excitement.
0: So, so I anyway... My, I went on my lunch break and I didn't have enough time, so I didn't get it signed. But you, were, you said you'd been to one book signing. I, I wanted to... I haven't been to any book signings. I almost went to a magazine signing.
1: Okay. Well, anyway, they have different tiers. Um, other than the VIP, you can even do it internationally um, to get the autographed book, uh, book merch.
0: Yeah, the other one, you don't get to meet them. But you don't get to talk to them on the other one, though. It's just the VIP where you get to actually have a conversation yes, with them, right? Yes, VIP yeah.
1: is the one where you get to do the one minute.
0: It's like, what, 35 bucks or something like that?
1: Uh, that 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 was uh it was 34 and change but that included the tax and the
0: which i mean it's it's actually very reasonable yeah. price if yeah. if you're a fan of somebody if you're going to go to a book signing and you're a fan that's a really reasonable price yeah i'd imagine if it's in person it'd probably be a lot well because
1: it's him and lee bardu though yeah. and
0: she's the author of the grishaverse yeah um
1: and another series too and other books But uh, she's going to be talking about the Grishaverse being turned into a TV series, and he's going to be talking about the Desolation of uh, Devil's Acre um, book, the final installment of the Miss Peregrine series. So, I mean, they're going to be talking for an hour, and the thing goes from, like, 7 to 8, and then from 8 to 10, you know, he's going to have his one minute.
0: That's Convers- near, the, near the end of February, like 25th or something like that? It's on
1: the 24th. 24th, and, okay. Uh, there are like three different places selling tickets. And I know one of them doesn't start selling them till the 8th. But I checked a different place this morning and was able to get my, my ticket. So yeah. I'm excited. It's going to be a Zoom type thing. Well, sure. So um, yeah, so I'll but share if it's, that. If it's, if,
0: it's a, if it's a Zoom thing, they have limited capacity. So I would say if you're hearing this and... Tickets are released to get them quickly because they probably will sell out fairly quick, I would imagine.
1: Pro- I think that's probably why they have three different platforms. Yeah,
0: because Zoom, I think, has a 100-person limit. Even for the professional account, I think it's a 100-person limit. So, But if that's something you're into, then yeah. it's Like I said, it's a very reasonable price. Uh, oh, yeah. And if, if it was in person, it would be a lot more, I would imagine.
1: I don't know, because that one you got me for, Cassandra Clare, was not that much. It was around the same price.
0: Yeah, I suppose. I
1: think it was like $27. Because bucks.
0: he'd be going to more places than just one, so he'd be making more money as he went yeah, along, he Because so. he's doing...
1: Um, he's got another date set with him and John Green, and then he's got another date set with him and another author, but I forgot that guy's name. Um, but yeah, so I, I was interested in the one with him and Lee Bardugo.
0: Yep. Well, I'm happy for you.
1: I know. I'm excited. I, I
0: can tell the fact that you keep fucking doing the shoulder dance.
1: <laughs> I, well, I don't get excited about much
0: these days. I know. So,
1: when it comes to books and authors, I get excited every chance I can get.
0: You get excited when we see big cameos on WandaVision.
1: Yeah, well, that was, <laughs> that was exciting. Yes, it was. And I got excited at Royal Rumble when Carlito came out. Yes, she
0: did, even though I... I...
1: You ruined it for me. I
0: didn't ruin it for you. I said somebody you you like is going to come out, and I'm not going to tell you who it is. And then when he came out, you freaked out. I yeah. said, see, I told you you'd like it. I was so excited. I know. Now go rate and review us wherever you listen. Subscribe, follow, all that good shit. It helps bring us up in the charts. Bring us, Bringing us up in the charts gets us more advertisers, giving us more advertisers, gives us more money to put back to the podcast and make it better.
1: And buys me more books.
0: The goal is to be able to just sit at home and do this shit all the time and not have to go do a stupid fucking job. Will that happen? Probably not. Can I wish? You betcha. (laughs) Go to your local library, your local bookstore, volunteer if you can. Buy a book from a local independent author at a local independent bookstore. Best thing you do to help them out. Otherwise, get it from a major market. It helps the authors. But we need to be helping our bookstores as much as possible so we don't have to all hail Lord. Yeah. that's it that's all i got me too awesome okay well take care of yourselves take care of one another between now and the time you get to talk to you again do yourself a favor
1: go open a fucking book all right we'll see you,
0: you. many republican senators and congressmen <laughs>